So we are, if you've been with us over a number of weeks, you'll know that we're in a series uh, looking, uh, calling Encounters with Jesus, looking at what happened when Jesus walked the earth over 2,000 years ago as he encountered people and radically changed their lives. And then we're saying, well, what does that then mean for us today living in the 21st century here in Swindon and the surrounding areas? What does that look like for us to be a people who are radically changed and transformed by Jesus? Because Jesus didn't come just to kind of make a few tweaks to our life in our back pocket. Jesus came to radically change us, to radically transform us from our former selves into our new selves, into the image of his son, image of himself. That's the purpose of Christian discipleship, that we become more like Jesus, our master and our Lord. And he wants to radically change us from the inside out so that every area of life is shaped by what he has to say. What we do with our time and our talents and our treasures and everything about our lives is shaped more about what he says than what anything else says. That's what the purpose of this series is. And so today we're looking at the call of the, of the disciple Matthew. What happened when Jesus met Matthew and called him to come and follow him. And as we look at this passage, we're going to see, and as we apply it to ourselves, we're going to see that true life comes in truly letting go. True life comes in truly letting go. And I just want you to imagine for a moment, before we dive into the passage, that this, this backpack, this is why this backpack is very important for today, makes up kind of your heart's desires or your motivations. Imagine the things that, you're, that your vision of the good life, what's your vision of the good life? What's your vision of the things that make you happy? What are the things that really motivate you inside your heart? I want to imagine just for a moment that they're in this backpack today. The things that really drive you, the things that really shape you, What's in your backpack? Just think about it for a moment. Maybe it's wealth or making enough money to be comfortable. Maybe it's kind of making a success of yourself. Maybe it's that you have a good reputation with people. Maybe it's kind of as long as I have a good career, I do well, that's what I want, or to make something of myself. Maybe really what's in here is I just want to be comfortable in life. As long as I'm comfortable, that's okay. Or maybe it's kind of security. As long as I'm safe and secure, Maybe it's family or relationships. Maybe it's even kind of like my time. My time is the most important thing. I know I've only got a limited amount of time on earth, so my time is really what motivates me, and I want to hold on to it. What's in here for you? What makes up the kind of backpack of your motivations and desires? Just think about that. We'll come back to that a bit later. So if you'd like to turn to um, Matthew chapter 9, if you've got a Bible. If not, it will come up on the screen. We're going to read a few verses from the book of Matthew, chapter 9, uh, verse 9. So Jesus is in a city called Capernaum, a very important trading city in Israel. And he's probably with some some of his early followers, particularly Peter and James and John, who he's already called. It says this, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician or a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call 
for the righteous, but sinners. Just to help us visualize this passage, I want to just show us a two-minute clip from The Chosen, which I think beautifully expresses what must have happened as Jesus met with Matthew. So hopefully we've got it on the screen. I love how the chosen just portrays the drama of that moment and that sense of like, you can imagine Peter. I think I'd have been like, Peter, are you serious, Jesus? This guy? Come on. So as we know, this passage really centers around kind of two, two, two characters, really. We have Matthew, the Jewish tax collector. He's, he's kind of main man number one. And then we have Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So Jesus is walking through in the city, as we said, in Capernaum. And he turns and he sees this tax collector Matthew, going about his business. Now, no one likes the tax man, right? No one is a fan of the tax man. No one likes how much HMRC, take out your paycheck. No one likes the tax man, I get that. But first century tax collectors were in a different level of unfair and unpopularity and the way they went about their work. If you read the New Testament, so often the New Testament writers describe tax collectors alongside kind of sinners or wicked people. So you see in verse 10, Jesus is reclining at the table with many tax collectors and sinners. It's kind of like the two are just synonymous. The two are just put together, tax collector and sinner put together. In another passage later in Matthew, he talks about tax collectors and prostitutes being in the same breath. They're like, they've put together tax collectors on the ladder of popularity were somewhere not even on the ladder. They were so far off it. They were so unpopular and such a kind of despised among society in the Jewish first century. They were thought of as the lowest of the low. Because the reality is Matthew here is a Jew and he's collecting money for the Roman governing authorities. He is collecting money on behalf of a foreign oppressor. So he's seen as a traitor. He's seen as a collaborator. He's seen as somebody who's, who's kind of, you know, doing the work of the Romans on their behalf. So he was deeply unpopular, but he was also protected by Rome. And so the people that thought of him unpopular couldn't get to him because he had protection around him. So not only was he unpopular and a traitor and a collaborator with a foreign ruler, but he was also someone who would have overcharged people, especially to those who were poor. So in the first century, tax collectors would kind of agree to the, to the Romans, this is how much I'll give to you. But what they did is they went around and collected more, gave to Rome what was promised to them, and kept the rest. And so it's kind of in their interest to collect as much as they could and pocket the difference for themselves. And so therefore, tax collectors were very wealthy and very comfortable. I love what, it says, uh, what the Chosen says there, no Jew lives as good as you. And that probably would have been true in the first century, kind of in a subsistence, kind of farming or fishing-based culture. People were not rich, but tax collectors were wealthy and very comfortable. They lived a very good life, albeit having done so through greed and deception. But you know what? Jesus knew this when he stopped and he looked at him. Jesus knew what kind of business Matthew was into. Jesus knew the kind of trade that he did. Jesus would have even known the kind of way that he would have gone about it because Jesus is growing up in that culture. He would have understood, even if not necessarily exactly Matthew, although he is a son of God, he does know everything, but he, he would have known exactly what Matthew did. He knew exactly how he would have gone about his work. He knew exactly the greed and deception that he goes about, and yet he stops, he looks at him, and he calls him by name, and he says, follow me. Follow me. Follow me. He looks at him, 
He stopped in the street. He says, come, come, come and follow me. Now, we have to remember to look at these words, follow me, through the lens of a first century Jew, not 21st century Westerner. 21st century Westerner is going to go, Jesus says, follow me. We get out our phones, say, yep, I'll hook you up on Instagram, Jesus. I'm following you. Jesus says, cool, that's done. That is not what is going on here. To follow someone in the first century means to come and join them in every way, to be their apprentice or their disciple, to come and, come and follow them and look at their life and say, how do you live? And therefore, I want to live like you in exactly the same way. Everything about your life, I want to make it like, like mine. Everything about how you live and breathe and eat and sleep and rest and pray, that's how I'm basing my life upon. That's what first century following Jesus looked like, not a simple follow on your phone, kind of going, yep, I've hooked you up on Insta, that's it, Jesus, we're now mates. No, it's a laying down of everything in the pursuit of following him. You see, Jesus reaches out and he invites the worst of sinners in Matthew. He peers into his heart. He sees everything that he's done. And if anybody should be out of his reach, it should be someone like Matthew. If anybody should be too far gone, it should be someone like Matthew. But let me say this, salvation is a wonder of grace, not something that we can earn. Jesus looks into your heart, and no matter how bad you think you are, no matter how far from God you are, no matter how much of a mess you might have made of your life, no matter how broken you might think you are, no matter how much you might think you might have sinned, Jesus looks at you, he calls you by name, and he says, come and follow me. No one is too far from the reach of God. No one, no one in this room, no one beyond this room is outside of the reach of Jesus Christ who looks at even the worst of sinners and says, come and follow me. His love has absolutely no limits and his grace has no measure. And he calls you, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, the only reason is is because Jesus has pierced into your heart and called you and said, follow me. And there's something he's done in your heart that goes, yes, please, Jesus, I want to follow you. And however you're coming through the door this morning, whether you feel like life is sorted, which in reality it probably isn't, or whether you feel like life is in a mess, no one in this room is beyond the reach of Jesus Christ. No one. No matter what mess or brokenness you think you're in, Jesus invites you in. Because his invitation to Matthew 2,000 years ago is the same invitation to us today. Come and be my apprentice. Come and be my follower. And Matthew, who actually writes this passage, by the way, he doesn't exactly talk a lot about how he reacted. He simply uses six words in this passage to describe how he responded to the invitation of Jesus. So here's Matthew. He's working in his tax collector, getting loads of money, putting some more in his pocket, thinking about his retirement, happy life, got plenty of cash, very comfortable. What am I going to go do later? Maybe I'll just go and chill under the sun once I've finished collecting money and being greedy. Jesus calls him. And in a moment, everything changes. And Matthew simply writes six words. And he rose and followed him. In spite of all of his mess and his brokenness, he is undone by the wonder of grace and by the invitation of Jesus. That he simply gets up from his tax booth, walks away and says, Jesus, I'm following you. Such is the power of the invitation of Jesus to transform his life. 
that he's going to give all of that behind, leave all of that to one side and say, Jesus, you're worth following and giving everything to. Do you know, this passage conveys a sense of immediacy, a sense of instant. There's no kind of sense of like Matthew hung around for a bit, thought, Jesus, let me just think about this. I'll come back to you tomorrow. Let me just, let me just think about the cost. Let me just think about what it might mean. He rose up and he followed him. There's no sense of delay. There's no sense of kind of waiting. There's a sense of immediacy. He gets up from his booth and he joins Jesus on his road. You see, Matthew was up to here in an evil occupation working for the Romans, doing his job with greed and deception. But in a divine moment where he is called by Jesus, he leaves behind all his hopes of gain that he may follow Jesus. In an instant, his life has changed forever. In his instant, his life is changed forever. He gets up and he follows Jesus. What we have to understand about Matthew is that he had a pretty bad reputation, as we talked about, among the Jews. But he would have known that when he got into that profession. He would have known that kind of being a tax collector equaled bad reputation. But on the positive side, being a tax collector, he knew that he had chosen the path of comfort, and security, and wealth. That was the pathway of Matthew's life. That was the thing that made up the backpack of his life. His motivation was comfort, and security, and wealth. This was the thing that he held most onto, and treasured the most. And Jesus comes along, and he lays it down before him. He gave it all up. He leaves behind this comfortable way of life to follow Jesus. He leaves behind his riches for the simplicity of a life on the road with Jesus. Following him meant costing Matthew everything. And yet there was no delay. There was no hesitation. There was an immediate response. We don't necessarily know masses about how Matthew's life went from here on out. What we do know is he faithfully followed Jesus. He was there at the birth of the, of the early church. He was faithful all the way through his life. And early church tradition has him martyred. Uh, probably kind of somewhere in Egypt for his faith of preaching the gospel to new territories. What a far cry from a tax collector in Capernaum, living his comfortable best life, planning his future of security and comfort and wealth, to a life of following Jesus that ultimately cost him his life. What a far cry, what a change, what a transformation in his life. And so when Jesus says to people, come, follow me, it's an invitation to lay down worldly treasures, to lay down comfort, to lay down security and reputation. That was his invitation to Matthew. That was his invitation to Peter. And that's his invitation to you today. But I wonder if we're really honest with ourselves, if we're going to be really real in our hearts for a moment, and I only know this because I know the state of my own heart, I know what I get drawn to. We respond to Jesus a bit like this. We hear the call, follow me. We go, yes, great. Thank you, Jesus. I'm bringing this with me. All these things that are most important to me, I'd love to follow you. Oh, yes, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your salvation. I'm just going to bring these things along the road with me. Yes, Jesus, you can have everything but don't take away my comfort. Yes, Jesus, I'll follow you, but 
my time, my talent, my treasures, I'm going to cling on to these. I'm going to hold on. I don't want to let them go. I'm going to hold on. We try to hold on, but the invitation of Jesus is to let go. The invitation of Jesus is to let go. And for so many of us, we try to cling on to the things of the world. We try to cling on to the motivations of our hearts that we think will make us happy and fulfilled and secure. And we cling on. We say, Jesus, I'll have you plus these things. Jesus, I'll ha- yes, I want all you've got to offer, but let me hold on. Let me cling on. Don't let me give up the- these things. No, no. Don't let me give up these things. I'm clinging on to these. When Jesus invited Matthew to stop collecting taxes, when he invites Peter to stop fishing, and when he invites you to follow him, this is what he means. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever saves his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? How often does our Christianity end up looking like a blended spirituality of a bit of Jesus and a bit of comfort? Or a bit of Jesus plus my riches? Or a bit of Jesus sprinkled with the things that I find most important? Or my pri- Jesus plus my priorities? How often does our spirituality end up like that? Friends, I don't know what kind of gospel we've been sold or think, but following Jesus is a hard road. There's a deep cost to following Jesus. It means leaving behind things that look so appealing. It looks like radical obedience to the way of Jesus. It looks like fighting comfort and convenience. And this is what we see in the life of Matthew as he's called by Jesus. He gets up, he leaves his life behind, and he follows Jesus with everything. I don't think Matthew came and said, I'm holding on to these, Jesus. I think he said, I'm letting go, and I'm laying them down at your feet. When we try and hold on and never let Jesus in, We never really find the invitation that he's actually asking us to. What he's asking of us is this. Yes, Jesus, I want to follow you. All these things in here are now yours. I'm laying them at your feet for your glory and for your kingdom. My time, my career, my reputation, my priorities, my motivations, my heart. I'm laying them down, Jesus, at you. And I'm saying, take them and use them for your glory and for your kingdom advance. That's what it looks like to respond to the call of Jesus, to lay before him in total surrender. Life following Jesus isn't easy. C.S. Lewis once said, if you want comfortable religion, don't choose Christianity, which I thought was a brilliant quote. But the reality is this, in following Jesus is hard and the road is tough. In the upside down nature of the kingdom of God, True life actually comes by truly letting go. The passage here says, those who lay down their life truly find it. 
Because a surrendered life to Jesus leads to something far better than the comforts and conveniences and security that this world has to offer. Because the way of Jesus leads to God himself as the ultimate satisfaction and the ultimate source of joy and life and and rest and peace and freedom and purpose. That actually, as we learn to surrender everything and hold lightly to the things of the world and to say, Jesus, all these things are yours, actually, it leads us to the very author of life. And we find the kind of life that we've always been looking for. The the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God, that actually, it's in laying down that life comes. It's in letting go that life comes. But for so many of us, me included, and I've really been wrestling with this as as I've been preparing this week, I never fully let go and surrender it all before Jesus. And I try and walk this kind of funny middle road of Christianity, which is like, Jesus, yeah, I'm here, but I also want to be over here. Jesus plus comfort. Jesus, don't ask me to give up too much. And we kind of walk this kind of tightrope, this kind of blended middle road with Jesus. And in doing so, we never really learn to lay down our lives. And so in doing so, we never really find true life and true joy and true purpose and true meaning. The invitation of Jesus is very simple, yet very costly. Follow me. Deny yourself. Lose your life. Surrender your heart, your priorities, your motivations, and your life to me. And in doing so, as you learn to let go, you'll find true life that I'm actually offering you. That's the invitation that Jesus gave to Matthew and his early disciples. And that's the invitation that he wants to give today. True life comes in truly letting go. Just as we come to land, I kind of get this is one of those messages which is very popular. It's hard-hitting. It's good to hear challenges. It's good to be provoked as we open the word of God together. As we come to land, I want to just do two things. And I'm well aware, because I've listened to enough preachers in my life, that you kind of might feel provoked in a moment, and then you walk out the door, and you get home, and it's busy, and you go to work tomorrow morning, and it's busy, and you kind of forget about what was spoken about. I'm very aware of that. I'm not naive to that. So what I want to invite you to do, if, you're, if you'd like to, in order that we don't do that, what I'd really like to invite you to do is to, if you... If you're writing notes, to write these questions down. If you're not, get out your phone, open up your notes on your phone. I just want to invite you, if you'd like to, no pressure. If you'd like to think about these things during the week and not just kind of forget about it as you, as you walk out the door, I want to ask, firstly, I want to ask a question, which is quite challenging. And then secondly, I want to give us a practical step to take forward. So the first is this. If you want to write this down, go for it. This is a challenge to us and for you to ask yourself, when was the last time my faith in Jesus made me uncomfortable or cost me something? When was the last time my faith in Jesus made me uncomfortable or cost me something? And secondly, how do we move forward? Because I don't know about you, but heart change is quite difficult, yeah? It takes time. It's not as simple as going, ah, brilliant, today I'm going to live a surrendered life, Jesus, to you, and ta-da, tomorrow morning you'll find that you don't care about the things of the world. It doesn't work like that. 
Change takes time. A surrendered life is not easy. Following Jesus so often starts with a decision in a moment, but then takes years of practice and habits and learning to actually be a fully formed disciple of Jesus. So I want to give us one practical step to take forward this week, if you'd like to. I want to invite you to ask God to show you one area of life that's in your backpack that you're finding difficult to surrender to him. And it's going to be very individual to you. It's going to be very individual depending on your circumstances and the things that you battle in your heart. What's one thing in here that you're finding hard to say, God, that's yours. I'm giving it to you. What's one thing? Because change is difficult, let's start with one thing. What's, what's one area of life? You're going, God, I'm, I'm finding this so hard to say it's yours. I find it really hard to trust you in this thing. I don't know how to do that. So write it down at some point. Ask God to show it to you. And then I want to invite you to share that with a trusted friend. Because God invites us to do the walking with him in community, not on our own. And change requires community. Change requires friends and brothers and sisters who walk alongside us. And maybe it's someone who's here this morning. Maybe it's someone who's part of the church who isn't here. Maybe it's someone who isn't even part of, part of this church. You know, they're a trusted friend. And I feel like I could just share something in my heart with them and say, hey, I just, I'm struggling in this. Would you, would you help me? And in, doing, in sharing it with them, there is power in sharing things with other people, by the way. But secondly, as we walk with friends, they get to encourage you and cheer you on and pray with you and pray for you and just check in and go, hey, how's your heart doing? That's what the beauty of Christian friendship is all about. It's about kind of going, hey, how's your heart? But actually, that requires us to be vulnerable. So often, we want to hide, and in doing so, we never give people an opportunity to speak into our lives. And I want to invite us just to be really honest with one person about one thing and just go, hey, I'm just struggling with this. Would you walk with me? Would you help me? Would you encourage me? Would you challenge me where I need you to be challenged? One thing with one person. And watch just how God, through that simple step, starts to make changes into your heart. Friends, I'm not on, I promise I'm not on Instagram. Let's not settle for anything that keeps us from Jesus and laying everything down before him. And as we learn to lay everything down, we find that life comes in letting go. Can I just invite you, if you'd like to, just to respond in your hearts right now. If you want to stand, you can. If you want to hold your hands out, if you want to sit, if you want to kneel, whatever works best for you. Close your eyes. Maybe the band can come up in a minute. Could we give us a song? And then, we'll, and then we'll pray. There's, a, there's an old song that I've just been reminded of this week that says this, All I once held dear and built my life upon, all this world reveres and wars to own, all I once thought gain, I have counted loss, spent and worthless now compared to this. Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. You're my all, you're the best, you're my joy, my righteousness, and I love you. Now my heart's desire is to know you more, to be found in you and known as yours, to possess by faith what I could not earn, oh, the all-surpassing gift of righteousness. Oh, to know the power of your risen life and to know you in your sufferings, to become like you 
in your death, my Lord, so with you to live and never die.